Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North, citizens of the world, and welcome. Tonight we explore an alternate model of physics known as the Electrical Universe, or LU. And for that challenging task, we could have no better guest than Australian physicist Wallace Thornhill. In part one, he leads us through the basics of this dissident school, how it poses that our universe is wired, and brings us up to speed about their work. In part two, we focus on how this theory is met in academia and the scientific world, demonstrating that there's no such thing as free science and that control mechanisms inherent in today's system rather than facilitate it, is a detriment to neutral, objective scientific research. We'll not touch the cataclysm aspect now, reserving it for a separate show in order for us to go into depths. But first, a brief note on our guest. He earned his degrees in physics and in electronics at the University of Melbourne in 64. His postgraduate studies was with Professor Victor Hopper's Upper Atmosphere Research Group. However, before entering university, he became inspired by the controversial and groundbreaking work of Dr. Emanuel Velikovsky. Wallace Thornhill experienced firsthand the indifference and or hostility towards challenges to mainstream science and realized there's no career for a heretic in academia. Instead, he pursued an independent path and put his resources to practical work in real life. Simultaneously, he continued his obsessive study of cosmic electricity and Velikovsky's work. Wall Thornhill devoted much of his professional life to the study of plasma and electricity. After working 11 years with IBM Australia, he then moved on to the prestigious IBM Systems Development Institute in Canberra, among else working on the first computer graphic systems in Australia. Thereafter, he was employed by the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs, he was also technical support for the computing facilities in the research schools at the Australian National University, which gave him excellent access to libraries and scientists there. He also attended postgraduate courses in astrophysics at the University of London and meetings of the Royal Astronomical Society and the British Astronomical Association. Despite the increasingly dogmatic censorship imposed by scientific journals over the last century to the detriment of independent research, Thornhill has written many papers for various journals over the years, like the US journal Aeon and the Review of the Society for Interdisciplinary Studies, or CIS, in England. He even served as a council member of CIS for several years while working in London for the Australian government. His first peer-reviewed paper on the electrical nature of stars was published in the IEEE Transactions on Plasma Science in 2007. He also published a co-authored paper on the Martian blueberry and a co-authored paper in Japan on the plasma phenomenon at the centers of galaxies. In 2010, 
the European Telesio Galilei Academy of Science awarded him its gold medal. Today he is retired, but keeps working for the LU project, like senior editor for the Picture of the Day feature on Thunderbolts.info, a main hub for LU, as well as his own website holoscience.com, where you'll find most of his work. As for his engagement with the Velikovskian School, he was invited to attend their first international conference at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario in 74. There he met one of his future collaborators, David Talbot, but also Dr. Velikovsky himself. On a subsequent visit to Velikovsky at his home in Princeton, New Jersey, Wallace posed the key question, what is the true nature of gravity? This culminated in the LU theory, formulated together with myth expert Talbot, which now has a worldwide following. An insistence on empirical data from observations and experiments give their work true integrity. The LU model was first presented officially at the World Conference in Portland in 97 and provoked great interest from attending astronomers, engineers and scholars. Workshops and conferences were subsequently held in Portland and Seattle. Booklets and CDs were produced. In 2000, Wall was keynote speaker in Portland along with the noted astronomer Halton Arp from the Max Planck Institute and the plasma cosmologist Anthony Perrat from the Los Alamos Laboratories. Later that year he shared the podium with Halton Arp at University College London and in 2001 he was keynote speaker at the Intersect 01 conference in Laughlin, Nevada. This brought forth new alliances within the broad scope of the LU model, including Oxford biologist Rupert Sheldrake, cellular biologist Bruce Lipton and psychologist Gary Schwartz of the University of Arizona. At the conference, Dr. Peratt provided experimental evidence confirming that electrical force is paramount in the universe proving that gravity-only theories can no longer be sustained. Paramount in their model is the place of electromagnetism as distinct from gravity in the formation of the universe. The electrical force influences matter at all levels from subatomic particles to galactic clusters, leaving little room for the disconnected fragments of modern theories. Wall has published several books with Talbot and many articles available for free online. He is also a favored guest among various radio shows and podcasts and currently has Gaia TV create a series on our electrical universe. Welcome to Forum Borealis Wall. Thanks very much, Al, for the invitation. I'm pleased to be able to speak to somebody from Scandinavia. Yeah, we are, uh, like uh, Gordon White said to me, he lives in Tasmania. Mm -hmm. He said to me that now we're stretching the tin can line (laughs) (laughs) all the way across the globe. (laughs) (laughs) And we're doing it again. Yeah, I think it's important uh, for me because uh, some of the best cosmologists in the world uh, come from Scandinavia where they actually see the electrical activity in the sky. You mean contemporary? Yes, uh, the Nobel Prize winner Hans Alfein in his uh, Nobel Prize acceptance speech pointed out that cosmologists should witness the auroras uh, because that's an example of the electrical nature of the universe. 
That's interesting. Um, I've heard different explanations for that. And we'll go get back to that. But sure. um, what, what I think we could do is to, in the first part, basically focus on the nature of the... Well, oh, very first, let's just go quickly through your resume, like who you mm-hmm. are and what you've done. But then I, I think you present... And, and it will be a condensed version, obviously, because we don't have that much time. But if you could, in first part, uh, give us a gist of what electrical universe theory is. Yes. And then in part two, I'd like to focus on the failure of academia. I'd, I'd say academia more than science, mm. because science is an objective institu- uh, tool, I mean, <laughs> yes. not an institution, right? Yes, people know what it's supposed to be. <laughs> it's supposed to be, right? And, yes. and we're having a series where we, uh, the series is called The Crisis of Academia. Oh, I see. And, and we like to help people understand what the problems of contemporary academia is yes and uh, i've had uh, you you probably know michael cremo yes so no matter what one believes about his field it should mm-hmm. you know he should be able to present it in a scientific academic way sure but no of course not so so uh, he's told us about problems in his field so now we have a completely different field with you so i, I see and i know you can account for this because when i did research on you i picked up you were interviewed by a girl and you were talking a lot about basic problems of yes how how this theory has been met so so i think if if you game for that i'd love to do that in part two okay mm. I, i'll probably be talking a little too yes i can never shut up especially <laughs> not i'm very passionate about this subject uh, about the crisis of academia so i probably rant a little too i see <laughs> you can see if you can get some statements in then <laughs> Yes, understood. So that's about it. And also indulge me because uh, I must admit, although I have uh, done my fair share of uh, reading in in different uh, scientific theories, I am Mm -hmm. pretty virgin to the electrical universe theory. That's all right. Uh, You're not alone there. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, lots of people I I respect are supporters of it. So uh, Mm. I figured I should give it... It's due eventually. (laughs) And here we are. (laughs) Yes. I think the main thing is that it returns to classical physics Ah. and uh, only deals with uh, what we can objectively observe. Right. And uh, it deals with experiment and the results of experiment. So I'm very pleased that uh, the gods have smiled on us and allowed us to run an experiment in Canada called the Sapphire Experiment. Oh, wow. Uh, It's a... it's a complicated uh, acronym, um, stellar atmospheric function in, um, oh, I can't even remember what the last two were, <laughs> in, in response experiment. In other words, uh, how what we've set up is a model of the electric sun. Mm. And it's uh, we've spent more than $2 million, probably closer to three now on it. Oh, wow. And uh, the model is quite simple, and the engineer who's doing it is an absolutely outstanding engineer. He's in charge. He was running a $100 million company, but uh, got clobbered by the GFC when people wouldn't pay their bills. And mm. uh, he knew about what we were doing and called, just called me out of the blue and said, uh, this is my situation. I'd like to help. What can I do? 
Nice. And so uh, out of that sprang this experiment, and he's done an absolutely superb job of instrumenting it so that uh, uh, we now... Okay. Have yeah, I have a million questions about that, but we'll we'll take that later. Sure. We'll, we'll save the juice so we don't have to rehash yeah. it. Yeah, the basic thing is that we, we return to the classical physics idea of trying to simplify. In other words, trying to explain things in, t- in very simple terms. Okay. Well, then I'm already a supporter. <laughs> but by the way, a lot of people uh, we have, I don't think, know you. So before we go to the ideas, I want to talk a little about you. Yes. And now, obviously, you live in Australia. Oh, yes. Yes. Born and bred here. And oh, yeah. And I have to say, Wal, how did we end up uh, inviting you on? Well, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. I remember a friend. He's into interesting stuff like anti-gravity, free energy, like science, but fringe science, right? <laughs> he was mm-hmm. the first to mention electrical universe, but I never looked into it. And then after uh, we started our podcasts back in 15, I think, was it? Yeah, 2015. Mm-hmm. And after probably a couple of shows, someone said, hey, you got to get these electrical universe people on. <laughs> I said, okay, well, that's interesting. Well, okay, duly noted. And it didn't last long. Someone else said the same. Talking about listeners now. Yes. And then someone else, and then someone else. And I have to tell you, in all honesty, you are probably the most recommended by our listeners to get, that's you, good. get you on. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> Uh, and I googled and I, okay you have a big following but th- there could be other things they were asking for so I think that says more about my listeners actually than it says about uh, your stuff so yes. I had no choice I had to get you on <laughs> <laughs> you know popular demand as they say <laughs> so you certainly made an impact uh, yeah. but that said although you have passionate supporters and some of them listen to us uh, I'm pretty sure uh, most of my listeners are, are not too familiar, so we'll we'll remedy that today. Good. So let's start with uh, when we have a guest on for the first time. Uh, I have to ask about uh, personal history. So yeah, let me ask you about your your scientific background and how you ended up in this so-called uh, e. Do you call it EU? Yes, that's right. It's a bit confusing. Okay. <laughs> it is here. Yes. Um, <laughs> there is another EU that I don't like, but but this one I think I will like. So, so tell me about this. <laughs> yes, uh, we have um, actually a conference in uh, the UK at uh, Bath University in July this year. And, of course, it's advertised under um, EU in the UK. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, if you Google it, all you get is... Um, uh, European Union mm. information and pages and pages of that. Unless you specify more strongly that it's the Electric Universe or Bath, you won't find us. Right. right. But uh, anyway, that's that's just how it's worked out. We were there first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for how long has this been going on? Well, uh, it began in 1994, uh, the collaboration, which eventually in 1997 was first presented as the Electric Universe, Uh, And that happened because uh, David Talbot, who's probably the leading uh, comparative mythologist in the world, invited me to uh, an international conference that he was putting on in Portland, Oregon. And uh, I'd known about him. I'd actually met his brother 20 years earlier uh, in 1974 at an international symposium on Velikovsky's work called Mm. The Recent History of the Solar System which, of course, is a challenge because the solar system is not supposed to have a recent history. They're talking about within mankind's memory. Mm. 
uh, I met him there and I reminded him of that fact and the, the fact that I'd also been pursuing what we were both there for, and that was to support Velikovsky's view that our understanding of the history of the human race and the earth was totally governed by a uniformitarian idea that nothing happened in the past that we don't witness happening today. And Velikovsky challenged that, but in doing so, earned the wrath of uh, the astronomers of the day, particularly in America, yeah. with the result that he his book was effectively burned in the 20th century, which shows that uh, the Jeez. religious principle of burning books that you don't agree with uh, still persists in cosmology. Yeah. So that's where it started. Um, but, but, but hang on, hang on. Uh, the theory itself. Yes. Uh, I know you talk about the organization about it, but uh, who can we ascribe this uh, understanding to? Well, interestingly enough, the first term, the first time I've seen it used was in reference to uh, Hans Alfain's work in plasma uh, research. And uh, a, a, a title for an article written about Hans Alfain and his research was published in the Boston Globe, I think it was. We would have been back in the 1960s, I think. Mm. And uh, it was titled Alfain's Electric Universe. And uh, so, <clears throat> as I said, the Scandinavians can uh, actually claim some uh, precedent in all of this. Hmm. Now I have to be positively biased. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what about your journey? Um, did you start as a mainstream uh, well scientist? I realized in looking back, and of course when you get to my age, you can see the sort of path that you've taken and suddenly realize that uh, I was more or less destined to do what I've done because um, even in primary school I was asking questions like, can Einstein be right? And things like that, you know, because I couldn't understand how you could, um, how matter could have so much energy in it. That was mm. that E equals M C squared stuff. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but the I realised that the inspiration for all of this came in when I was midway through high school. That was in the 1950s, and uh, there was a book published in New York and was a bestseller for six months, called Worlds in Collision by a Russian emigre, uh, Dr. Emanuel Velikovsky. Yeah, I have that book. Love it. Yes. Well, he was a classical scholar, and really uh, he showed me that you have to be a classical scholar to do cosmology mm. because you cannot restrict yourself to mathematical theorizing or narrow specialization to understand the universe because uh, in doing so, you exclude most of the universe, including us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, And that is one of the key features of the electric universe. It brings everything back together again so that we really begin to understand ourselves and our place in the universe for the first time. So that was midway through high school. When I read it, my first reaction was, this is absolutely amazing, and I've never seen a forensic-style investigation of um, global myths uh, because, of course, people are more or less believe that they're kind of part of our growing up and that we, initially we behave like children telling stories, which were quite fanciful. Velikovsky pointed out that some of the things that uh, were reported can't or can be explained uh, with modern physics, um, and he went about trying to do that. And his conclusion was, and, and he put this right in the very few, first few pages of that book, Worlds in Collision, is that... Um, 
there is something about the mechanics of the solar system and of the universe which we don't understand because it appears to be governed by electricity and magnetism. Mm. So that was the, the big clue that uh, there's an electrical aspect to cosmology. Mm. Um, when I got to university, uh, by that stage, I was very worried that all of these experts and my teachers and that believed something different. And uh, so I let it sort of sit in the back of my mind for a couple of years. But just before I went to university, I thought I'd better read that book again because I'll have a chance to talk to people about it. Mm -hmm. Which I saw your thoughts. <laughs> yeah, so I thought when I got to university, I, I got hostility or the experts would give me an answer which bore no relationship to the question that I'd asked. Right. But it was one that they could answer. And I became very disillusioned about that. But I persisted and I realized, although I was, re you know, my uh, honors uh, work was in chemistry, I realized I'd have to switch to physics because that was where the answers would be found about gravity, mm. electricity and magnetism. Right. So um, <laughs> I finished my degree and I was accepted for postgraduate research in the upper atmosphere uh, section. And um, that was about the closest I could get to space at the time. Mm. And uh, But I realized halfway through that year that really academia was no place for somebody like me who was asking awkward questions. So uh, I started looking outside for work, and I ended up joining IBM as a scientific programmer. Oh, that, and when was this about? In, in uh, the... That was in, I left university, I graduated there from there in 1964. Wow, then uh, you, IBM, that was clever. <laughs> I thought so, uh, because uh, computing and that side of things, I loved the logical aspect of it. Yeah. And uh, I ended up uh, at the their Systems Development Institute in Canberra. So I moved from Melbourne, my my uh, the home where I grew up, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed Melbourne University, which is one of the leading universities in Australia, mm. uh, and was very sad to leave because I... When I was at high school, they used to ask, what do you want to be? And I used to say, a nuclear physicist. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway, I gave that by, up. By the way, do you have a nuclear plants in Australia? Uh, we have one research facility in Sydney uh, at Lucas Heights. And in fact, uh, that was where I became noticed by IBM for my ability to fix difficult problems. Uh, I'm a problem solver, really. Mm. And... Um, so they shifted me to Canberra to look after the Australian National University, which was wonderful because that was in the days of the uh, moon landings oh. and the return of rocks to the school of uh, the Earth Sciences School at the university. Now, the ANU was at more of a research university than a teaching university, so I had all of the top people uh, in science in Australia uh, that I could walk into their offices and, and talk to them. <laughs> it nice. was wonderful. Yeah. So it was almost as if the gods were smiling on me and they knew where they wanted me to go. Mm. <laughs> uh, having left academia, I'd um, uh, sort of fallen into a plumb position where I was not responsible for anything that I said, uh, but I had access to people who were doing the basic research on the moon rocks. Mm. And it was there that um, they were discovering things that they weren't expecting but which Velikovsky had predicted back in the 1950s and 60s, earlier. Like what? 
uh, the fact that the moon rocks would show remnant magnetism. Now, that wasn't expected because mm. uh, there was no idea that the moon ever had a, a magnetic field. But Velikovsky pointed out that uh, all of the uh, bodies, the Earth, Moon, Mars, and mm. Venus, and so on, had suffered extreme electrical interactions uh, within the last 10 to 20,000 years. Uh, even a child, if you look at a picture where you put up the planets and you, yes. you see the tilt and the spin, yes, it indeed seems like someone has run havoc through the solar system. That's right. Because they are all out of order in, in different ways. I mean, one of them is spinning the other way even, right? Yes. Yeah, well, it, there's, I've often said the solar system, uh, the planets are a fruit salad, because, the, <laughs> and yet they've tried to impose a model which requires that there should be a ordered gradation of pro properties from the inner ones to the outer ones, and that's not what we find. No. Uh, so the, it's been a case of trying to impose our beliefs on cosmology right from the very beginning and in fact cosmology has never actually departed from uh, religious ideas the big bang is merely a creation story with all of the um, miracles and so on still intact mm. which is quite incredible when uh, you realize the amount of money that's being poured into looking for dark matter and dark energy and gravitational waves and so on Yeah, yeah. So we have a, we have a case here of trying to fit evidence to uh, suit ideology, right? That's right. And yeah. our education systems are designed to uh, continue that and not change it. Right. So I suggest that in part two we we look more into how uh, this failure of, yes, of yeah. academia is, and in this part we try to understand better what you guys are saying yeah. is the case. Yeah. But maybe I should say a little about um, what I've managed to achieve since sure. uh, I've so-called retired, and that is throughout all of my career I have collected information about scientific re results that don't make sense according to the present uh, ideas, the beliefs. And in doing so, uh, I have been able to confirm the electric universe model at every turn. Nice. It either explains things more simply or I've actually predicted them in advance of the discoveries. And that is the definition of science, isn't it? Being able to predict based on facts. Yes, yes, that's it. Mm. Yep. So we, we love anomalies here, so so that's great. <laughs> and uh, I, all along the way, I've picked up some gongs. Uh, the Telesio Galileo Academy of Science in Europe uh, gave me uh, one of their gold medals, and uh, that, that was issued to me in Hungary in 2010. Nice. In 2013, I think it was, I was given the Sanyak Award by the, Nation, the Natural Philosophy Alliance, And uh, another leading uh, astronomer also received that award, so I'm very pleased to be in such company. And that was Dr. Halton Arp, who actually has observationally proven that the universe is not expanding. There was no Big Bang. Wow. So, so the, the breathing universe, the a contraction and expanding is rejected in electrical universe theory. Yes, his conclusion from his observations was that The universe is essentially static and much smaller than is presently believed. That is, I should say, just the visible part of the universe. But right. in effect, what he's saying is that the universe is of unknown extent and of unknown age.
But 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 it's conceivable that it's finite, not infinite. Well, we don't know. All we can say is what we observe, and uh, what we observe uh, shows no um, change uh, as far as we can see. And this is one of the things, of course, that's a puzzle for the Big Bang Theory because they're finding objects that are supposed to be at the limits of the universe, mm-hmm. and uh, yet they show the same characteristics as things which are up close, which, hmm. according to the theory, should be quite recent. Okay. Well, you know, in the mainstream, uh, in the schools and stuff, they, they teach the four forces, right? Electromagnetism, gravitation, and, and now comes two very bad words. I don't like them because they are misleading, but so-called weak nuclear force yes. and strong nuclear force. Yes. Is that accepted in electrical universe uh, model? No. Uh, the electric universe model <clears throat> is a return to classical physics which was uh, more or less abandoned at the beginning of the 20th century with Einstein and Bohr, Mm. um, who stopped doing physics and began doing mathematics. (laughs) Uh, And the distinction has to be made. Mathematics has nothing to do with physics. It is a useful tool when when you know what you're talking about and you've defined all of your variables and so on, which is not done these days. Um, So you really have to uh, go back to the brilliant research and the the theories and ideas of the 19th century when so many advances were being made in electrical and magnetism theory. You know, you go back to Gauss and Weber and uh, the uh, European, top European scientists and don't ignore them, which the uh, British have tended to do. And uh, you look at what Newton did, all of the pioneers, and you work from there. You don't pay any attention to the mathematical nonsense, which involves dimensions that have no physical meaning, like space-time. Yeah, so so I take it you reject stuff like the superstring theory and stuff like that. Well, that's just, you know, the more dimensions a mathematician (laughs) adds to his theory, each dimension is another free variable. Right. Uh, it's another, you know, it gives them more freedom to fiddle with the results. Right. Uh, Mathematically gobbledygook. Uh, yeah. So the more there are, the more the dimensions there are in a mathematician's theory, the, the further from reality they've departed. So as soon as we went to... So, so in a way, it's a free-for-all. It's a way for them to explain away stuff they don't want to confront. Of course. They just introduce exotic layers. Yes. But what about quantum physics? Uh, you, you're concerned with macrophysics, but, but don't you guys recognize microphysics? Oh, if cosmology has to deal with both ends of the scale. Exactly, right? Uh, that's that's right. Uh, you can't just uh, deal with uh, deep space and objects out there, many of which actually not observed. They're just surmised. Hmm. And um, the electric universe does that. In fact, uh, that was one of the key requirements of understanding gravity and magnetism, because at present there is no understanding of those forces. In fact, Einstein did away with the force of gravity which is a rather difficult thing to do if you think about when you fall over. What is it that happened when you hit the ground? What was going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To this day, it's it's uh, basic in, in all schools, you know, to say that w- we know gravitation is there, but we don't really understand it. Yes. It I mean, after 150 years, that's kind of a yeah. 
collapse uh, I mean they should have something by now so but I, I guess you guys have a better explanation of these forces yes you you don't operate with those four forces do you you say everything is electromagnetism and then the rest is just aspects of that or we go, we, no uh, I've gone the, the full Monty as they say <laughs> and there is only a single force in the universe and it is electric yeah magnetism and gravity are the response of normal matter to the electric force right and this, it's a very simple model it's a repeat of the atomic model at the subatomic model at the subatomic level so that uh, we discard the neutron as being a stable particle because we know it's not it's observed to decay within 14 minutes when it's outside the nucleus mm -hmm. but but it's not never th considered that the neutron is a marriage, a temporary marriage between a proton and an electron to escape the magnetic field and the electric field of the nucleus itself. So it's a temporary arrangement and it does not exist. But that, that kind of makes sense because these names are a little misleading, but to, to, yes. to common folks out there. A proton is positive uh, charge particles, an electron is negative charge, male and female, if you like. Yes. So then a neutron is just a marriage, a because what you get if you combine plus and minus, you get neutral, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. So that makes sense, actually, yeah. Yes, and the electric force is uh, 10 to the 39 times, that's one followed by 39 zeros, times stronger than the gravitational force. So you can understand that the mere separation by the tiniest fraction of uh, the positive and negative charge that must exist within the proton and the electron is sufficient to produce an, another force. And of course, if you have an orbital system, which is what we're, we're re applying the atomic model to an, an electron and a proton, uh, then if you give a push to a satellite, say, of the Earth in one half of its orbit, and then the push is op acting in the opposite direction of the other half of the orbit, what you generate is an elliptical orbit. And as soon as you have an ellipse, you have one charge sitting at one focus of the ellipse. That's the internal, the nuclear ob particle. Mm -hmm. And uh, the... Uh, ellipse itself has a negative end and a positive end at right angles to the electric force that's causing the distortion. That is the magnetic force. Mm. So it's very simple, and this is why the magnetic force is always generated uh, perpendicularly to the electric force, the electric current. Mm. Um, and as far as gravity is concerned, the nucleus is almost 2,000 times uh, heavier than the electrons that are flying around in orbit about the uh, atom. Yeah. So under the influence of the gravitational force, which uh, is un not shieldable, we know that you can't shield it with metal plates or you know electric electrically charged objects. The nucleus will fall towards the centre of mass, the centre of gravity. And that means that each atom in the Earth has the nucleus offset towards the center, which causes it to form an internal electric field inside the atom because the nucleus is offset from the center. And it's that weak distortion of the nuclear particles in that weak electric field
inside the atom, which is the gravitational force, and that explains why it's 10 to the 39 times less powerful than the naked electric force. This has always been a puzzle for physics. How yeah. is it that we can leap away from the entire mass of the Earth? You know, we should be only a few atoms thick lying on the surface if the electric force applied to us and the, the Earth. So um, it explains a lot, a lot of anomalies. It gets rid of all the mysticism. Yeah, but, but, but do you reject the concept of, let's say, uh, gravitons? Oh, the, all of these um, bosons and things that are uh, invented to save appearances. In other words, they invent uh, particles to carry a force. is nonsense. Mm. The real answer is we, were almost, we almost had the electric universe model in our grasp in about 1870 because Wilhelm Weber produced an atomic model based on this simple idea of uh, orbiting charge, uh, opposite charges, hmm. uh, from first principles. And uh, his theory was called the uh, theory of electrodynamics. Right. We have, we have a theory of electrostatics, which has uh, the force between two charged particles is dependent only on the square of the distance between them. Hmm. There is no time involved, you'll notice. It's instantaneous. There is hmm. no time delay, so time doesn't appear. Weber took the electrostatic force and said, let's generalize it so that we, the particles are not just sitting there statically and we're measuring the force between them. They're actually moving and accelerating. When he did that, he found that you form stable orbital systems. Mm. So there's your atom for you. Mm. Uh, you don't need any magical quantum theory, which is merely a recipe book based on statistics. <laughs> well, statistics is not a physical explanation. Uh, so um, applying Wilhelm Weber's law to quantum mechanics, it explains the so-called spooky action at a distance, which at present is not explained, and that is uh, you separate two so-called entangled particles and over great distances, and you flip, say, the spin of one and the uh, its partner at it can be a hundred kilometers away or thousands or whatever. Yeah, this, this is the classic in, in quantum physics, right? And supposed to yeah. prove that there's a greater coherence. Yes. You're saying electricity is this coherence. Yes, the electric force between all matter in the universe is the coherent aspect of the universe. And it's absolutely necessary. If it wasn't... And it's instantaneously, it, it bypasses time. It, yes. Yes. That's amazing. And gravity is instantaneous. It uh, doesn't travel at the speed of light, so the uh, gravitational wave detectors that they've built at great expense are a waste of money because gravity doesn't behave as a wave. It's instantaneous. It's like uh, you're connected by a, a rigid rod. Uh, the If it wasn't for that, I mean, uh, the solar system would fly apart uh, because we would be orbiting where the sun isn't and Jupiter would be orbiting the sun where it was hours ago. Mm. Uh, if, if gravity travelled at the speed of light, it would act like a slingshot, where the force is acting slightly ahead of you all the time and accelerating you. Uh, I mean, this is so obvious, it's amazing that people, you know, haven't recognised it. Well, obvious for you, maybe, but, you know... Um... 
<laughs> well, I think this is the way we're taught. Some people still believe in uh, Christian fundamentalism as a cosmology, so, you know, yeah. <laughs> we're different. But but let me see if I can try to dumb this down a little. Mm-hmm. Do you reject the notion of... I mean, obviously, you accept atoms, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah it's a very what successful sub- model. Pardon? It's a very successful model, and uh, it's withstood the test of time. Right. The problem is that there is no real explanation for it. Quantum theory treats electrons as a a statistical phenomenon, and all you can do is predict uh, the probability of an electron being found somewhere uh, in orbit about the nucleus. But if we go to subatomic particles, uh, you guys accept uh, electrons, and with that, I mean or a proton, electron, neutron, but you electrons don't... Electrons and protons. Yeah. Yeah, electrons and protons. Neutrons are an unstable particle which uh, only exists for temporary. a short... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. temporarily. But uh, below that, that's gobbledygook. Uh, the, what, we, what I'm saying is that the, you can explain magnetism and gravity in terms of going down one more level. And I think Einstein, even, you know, even though he made some terrible mistakes... Uh, which we're still living with, uh, he recognized he didn't like quantum theory. He doesn't like this idea that uh, statistics rules the behavior of uh, matter. God doesn't play dice. (laughs) God doesn't play dice. That's right, exactly. Uh, And he thought that it meant that uh, there was something at a deeper level that we weren't understanding. Mm. And the electric universe says, yes, you got that right. Uh, we can explain magnetism and gravity in terms of uh, an atomic structure of the electron and the proton. Mm. It's as simple as that. All these other particles, the zoo of particles that have been discovered, are merely short-term resonances of the bits that make up normal matter, the electron and the proton. Right. They've got, nothing to do, they're not, they've got no real existence apart from that. And all of the gluons and quarks and that other stuff I mean, they defy the principles of physics. The quarks are supposed to wink in and out of existence. Well, that's forbidden right. by classical <laughs> physics because that's magic. That is magical. It is magical thinking. It is. Yeah. But could you, uh, in a layman's terms, could you say that the the nucleus of the atom is like a sun and, and the planets are like the electrons? Uh, in a sense, but... <laughs> uh, this becomes very interesting. I mean, the discoveries keep uh, coming simply because there's these sudden realizations I have that some of these great scholars of the past, and you have to dump a lot of the ones that we currently worship, mm. um, were so close to the real answers. And it's just that we happen to pick the wrong people to follow, as they say. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, some of the greats have stood on the shoulders of giants, yeah. the people who went before. The problem is to pick the right giant. <laughs> Wouldn't you say Tesla would have been uh, an adherer to the electrical universe if he lived today? Absolutely. He was, uh, I think, one of these intuitive geniuses like Belikovsky, mm. who uh, made great advances and seemed to be able to almost visualize electric circuits in his head. Uh, the problem is it's very difficult to refer to his work because I've not been able to find uh, the documentation that you need to be able to say, look, this is what Tesla did and this is what he uh, said. Uh, he said a lot of good things. He said he dismissed Einstein's work as being, uh, you know, mm. nonsensical, uh, which it was and is. 
and uh, he had a, an inkling that the, you could produce a force like gravity, one which would knock things over at a distance, by uh, setting up uh, circuits and coils which generate uh, magnetic force. And that's the, the magnetic force and the gravitational force are identical in their origin. It's just that uh, they operate under slightly different circumstances. Mm. One is one is gravity is static, so to speak, because you've got a, a fixed body where all the particles are fixed in position in crystals and uh, the structure of them, a massive body. Uh, the electric force is due to particles in motion, respect to, you know, with respect to one another. That's the only difference. Um, mm. You know, <laughs> this is the thing. Once you've got these basic, simple principles in mind, all sorts of realizations come and you're able to say, I understand that. Uh, if a new discovery is made, you say, yes, does this fit with this model? And I've never found anything which doesn't fit. Hmm. That's a good sign. And, and when they discover things in space, I look at it and I say, yes, I can understand it, that in electrical terms, even though you're puzzled. And the puzzlement is uh, endemic in cosmology these days. Mm. The latest one being the uh, discordance between the um, background, so-called cosmic microwave background radiation, and uh, the distance measurements made using modern techniques of the so-called expansion of uh, galaxies from one another. They don't match. Mm. And this is this is a huge problem, uh, but nobody ever goes back to look at the assumptions that are built into Big Bang cosmology. And when you go back and look at the very basics of it, uh, it it's not scientific. I mean, the Big Bang itself is not scientific. It has a creation event, mm. and we can say nothing about creation. We do not understand where matter came from or how it comes into existence. No, but to to most to most people, nothing comes from nothing, right? Uh, so yes. they don't. I mean, it is a magic. It, it, what do they say? Give me one free miracle, and I can explain the rest, right? That's right. That's yes. kind of what they're doing. Yeah, unfortunately, Big Bang cosmology is like those. Um, uh, I remember when I was a kid, we used to go to the Saturday uh, movies, and they'd have a matinee uh, adventure. And, of course, each one would end up in a cliffhanger. And, of course, by the, when you came the next week, some miracle occurred and everything would be okay. <laughs> well, that's how modern cosmology reads. Right. right. <laughs> but, you know, as we speak, they are boosting, boasting that they have taken a photograph of a black hole. And yes. I remember I was impressed. I was very young and I read about the Einstein-Rosen bridge. Yes. Quasars being, <clears throat> being the opposite of uh, black holes. And so uh, that the theory is, you know, this, this was popularized in Star Trek and stuff like that, that if you could adjust into a black hole, then you would be traveling through hyperspace or whatever they call it, and then come out on the other side. <laughs> and, and now multiverse theory is very popular. So yes. how does the electrical universe theory relate to the concept, the concept of black holes and also that it can be entrances to other dimensions or universes? And do you acknowledge that they even have photographed a black hole? They haven't photographed the black hole. 
No, it's a, <laughs> it's a constructed image and it's not explained what and it's been coloured in to to make it look like what theory uh, suggests would be found. And we're not told what the colouring means. Is that uh, a reference to the uh, different frequencies of uh, that they observed this uh, the data, or they picked up the data, mm. and then they constructed this image from that data. Mm. One of the problems today is that uh, these very expensive experiments, what would be termed by another Nobel Prize winner, Irving Langmuir, who is uh, one of the pioneers of the electric universe if you like uh, who did plasma research and um, he uh, identified this kind of research they're doing today as pathological hmm. in other words you're, you're scratching around amongst uh, signals which are way down in the noise looking for patterns which you uh, want to see so it's a bit like looking at a Rorschach test and uh, seeing faces and things like that hmm. Uh, the other thing is that uh, it's not mentioned that the gravi gravity, gravitational wave detectors uh, had about half a million different um, faces that it was looking for. So the chances of finding something in amongst the noise to match their uh, ideas uh, was almost a given. Anyway. Hmm. So, so, so there's no black holes in the electrical universe theory then? No, no, black holes are invented because they don't understand gravity. Mm. Uh, if you don't understand what you're talking about, then you can you have to make up stories to cover the observations. And what we observe is that uh, galaxies don't conform to gravitational theory. So there's been attempts to modify Newtonian dynamics called MOND, modified Newtonian dynamics, um, and uh, they've introduced dark matter, which is um, undetectable by normal means, uh, except that it has gravitational influence. Well, this is the ultimate in storytelling. It's magic <laughs> because all normal matter will respond to electromagnetic uh, forces and produce signals other than just gravitational. So uh, it, it really is magic. And now they're finding that dark matter seems to be unevenly spread. You know, some galaxies don't appear to have it and others do. So it's a matter of you just put it where it's needed to save the appearances. It really is incredible. It is pathological science, as Irving Langmuir pointed out. Mm. The uh, electric universe uh, has a very simple model and it's based on Hans Alfane's work and that of the plasma scientists who've... Um, like Erwin uh, Bostick and uh, more lately Tony Peratt, who's written a textbook on the physics of um, the plasma universe. And he was actually worked with us for some years until, um, I, I can't actually discuss it, but we have some people who are what you call pathological skeptics. They're people who will try and damage your reputation. Yeah, pseudo-skeptics. Not just, yeah, but when, the, when they're actively trying to destroy your career because you've said something, then that is uh, goes above and beyond yep. being a pseudo-skeptic. Absolutely. They, they are crusaders, ideologically. That's right, yes. They're, they're the fundamentalists. Yep if you like, yep. in the religious cosmology of the 20th century. And, I, and, and we'll give them their due in part two when we go into the failure of modern academia, because I think they are, they're not the entire problem, but they are a huge part of the problem, I say. 
Yeah, it's a very interesting. Ish. In fact, my I collect paper files as well as uh, electronic. My biggest folder is on the sociology of science because that you could write a, a fat book about that. <laughs> yeah, and we could have a show about it too. Yeah, and we are having a series. So getting back to the black holes. Yeah, black holes. Yeah, I'd like to get back to the black holes. Yeah. Uh, what uh, we observe is that to explain the rotation of the uh, spiral galaxy, uh, there has to be a huge concentration of mass at the center mm -hmm. and also uh, more mass, which we can't see, this so-called dark matter floating around at distances outside the spiral itself. Mm. Now, the concentration of mass at the center is considered to be normal matter, neutral matter. You'll notice they never talk about electrical, electrified objects in space. Mm. It's because of the way astrophysicists are taught. And I've actually sat through the MSc course in astrophysics when I had the time. And uh, I approached the guy who did the plasma physics uh, semester at the end of it, and I said, when are we going to talk about uh, electrical activity in plasma? And he said, oh, we don't do that. And I said to him, I think you may be missing something very important. And yeah. uh, But he just, you know, brushed it off and walked away. I mean, that sentence shouldn't, there shouldn't be room for such a sentence in science. We don't do that. Yes. In church, yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're quite right, yeah, but it is a proof of the fact that the education systems fail us. Yeah. Um, the answer is very simple. Um, Hans Alfain, amongst uh, several other leading plasma physicists, have pointed out that the spiral arms are actually an electrical discharge phenomenon, which is observed in plasma. Uh, and Winston Bostick, I think it was, um, uh, first did uh, demonstrated this uh, in the laboratory. He could uh, fire these plasmoids at each other and they'd end up forming a spiral galaxy. Wow. So electromagnetic forces govern uh, the shapes of spiral galaxies and they govern their formation. It is a normal plasma discharge phenomenon to form a spiral, rotating spiral, in a very powerful electric discharge. Mm. Yeah, because everything rotates in, in this existence, doesn't it? That's right, and there's a big question about that. Where did that rotation come from? Well, the answer is simple. Electric current flows through space in the form of a helical structure of two filaments that rotate about one another. So any discharge between those two filaments will create a rotating object with two uh, bars between the two uh, spiraling filaments, rather like the rungs in the DNA ladder. And... Uh, at the center where matter accumulates will be the central bulge of a galaxy. And then you get the bar of galaxies and a barred spiral is a normal form of a spiral galaxy. And then you get the trailing arms uh, and even the fine structure of the trailing arms, which includes uh, what they call diocotron instabilities are observed in space. They're not explained by gravitational theory but they are a natural phenomenon in plasma physics. So Hans Elfane drew the circuit of uh, galaxy. He drew the circuit of the sun, and uh, all of this is available, but it's ignored by astrophysicists mm. because they don't talk about electricity in space. In fact, one of them said at one of our meetings that 
we know there's electricity in space, but it doesn't do anything, which is <laughs> an incredible statement yeah. when you think about it, because when we discovered electricity, we found it did everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and why would it be there? Yeah, exactly. Can something be there without having any effect? Yeah, that sounds. That also sounds magical. But I'm brought to think about this Russian scientist um, and um, his stuff, which is called torsion physics. Mm. Um, you are familiar with that? No, I'm not. Um, I deal with the basics, the very basics, and a lot of um, there's a lot of talk about vortexes and things like that, which are all great fun. But you've got to ask, you know, what is causing the rotation? What is causing the vortex? It's not the first cause. The first cause is electrical. Right. Uh, I'm looking for his name now. He is a very famous. Mm. Uh, he was uh, active under the Soviet. His physics were suppressed. Torsion physics is about rotation, and they they think that this may be the clue to free energy, anti gravity, all sorts of stuff. Yes. And that's why it's been suppressed. And I starting to think there may be some relations between that and the electrical universe because that would explain why they are suppressing the electrical universe if it can have implications that they don't want in, in practical terms, you know what I mean? I'm not sure that that's the case. Uh, okay. I've In the Natural Philosophy Alliance, uh, there are many scientists, including those from Russia, who would um, attend and present their work. The problem I found with almost every one of them is that they use the language of modern physics, and the language of modern physics lacks definitions. Would you believe that E equals MC squared lacks a physical definition for energy and mass? And if you're going to talk about the speed of light, it has to have a reference point. You can't talk about a speed without knowing what you're determining as the zero reference point. Mm. Of course, Einstein said that it did. You, you could choose any observer you like, and the, the speed for him, for light, will be uh, the same. You know, well, that's nonsense. Mm. It, it what Einstein effectively did was to remove our standards of measurement, length, mass and time and made them rubbery, which means we were no longer doing physics because physics has always relied on standards of measurement and a base. You have to have a base. And in the past, that used to be called the fixed stars. In other words, all the matter in the rest of the universe is the fixed base. And that base um, always... Uh, um, is, you know, without that base, you're not doing physics. And, and mm. Einstein discarded that. So that was his contribution to modern physics. And all of these people who talk about free energy and vacuum energy and stuff like that mm. are talking about probabilities. And probability is re refers to quantum mechanics, and quantum mechanics is a recipe without any idea of the ingredients. Um, mm. So... <laughs> as I but, said but do you does electrical universe theory reject they shouldn't reject anti-gravity because if gravitation isn't a primary force it should be able to be overcome ah the problem is you have to understand the origin of the force before you can understand yeah, uh, get sure. defeated yeah. yeah yeah and uh yes uh anti-gravity is actually a force that operates throughout the universe uh but we just don't recognize it Mm. That's a funny story, really, when you think about it, because Newton um, had a strange relationship with this guy, uh, 
what was his name again? It ended in Fatio de Duye, a, a younger man, who pointed out that um, the law of gravity, Newton's law, would operate quite happily if uh, everything was being forced to respond to particles traveling through the universe and pushing them together. In other words, uh, instead of being uh, an attractive force necessarily, uh, gravity was repulsive. Hmm. Now, this was picked up, I think it was in the 19th century by a fellow called Lesage, and uh, it was called Lesage's Gravity. And it, it does work because the idea is that you've got these particles coming from all directions. Uh, I'll, I forget what they're called. Uh, they had to be extremely high speed and of uh, you know low mass, and it had to interact with all the particles in that body. Hmm. And uh, two planets or a planet and a star nearby would shield each other from the particles that were coming from behind them. And the result was that... Uh, the uh, two bodies uh, would tend to form a relationship balancing the external force against this uh, shadowing effect. Now, Halton Arp, who I mentioned earlier, who was an outstanding astronomer and an observational uh, astronomer who pinned up his uh, pictures of galaxies and so on around his office wall and would sort of sit back and uh, consider them, he was also the author of the uh, Atlas of Peculiar Galaxies because he collected peculiar ones to try and uh, determine if there's any um, a pattern in their uh, growth or structure or something. Mm-hmm. That's a book it sounds like I want to read. Yes. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, his book that is probably most readable is Seeing Red, and you can understand why he called it that because he, as a result of uh, actually finding evidence for a static universe, um, submitted his paper. Mm-hmm. And I should say at this stage, he was one of the leading uh, up-and-coming astronomers uh, in the US and was a student of Hubble, actually worked with Hubble mm. for a while. Mm. And uh, when he submitted his paper, Ch- uh, Subramanian Chandrasekhar, who was one of the leading astrophysicists of the day, scrawled across the top of the paper, this exceeds my imagination, and was rejected. Now, that is absolutely incredible, because something that exceeds the imagination of um, an astrophysicist should be uh, of interest. Mm, Absolutely. (laughs) It requires investigation. But what they did was uh, they gradually uh, reduced Helton Arp's telescope time and then um, forced him more or less out of the business so he had to he went to germany and uh, worked in the uh, uh, research institute over there where they were looking at x-ray images from space Hmm. and he was able to show the same uh, results uh, using their work as well so he was helping up was supported by sir fred hoyle by the leading astronomers jeffrey and margaret burbage who all pointed out that the chances of him being wrong were millions to one based on the evidence that he'd uh, assembled. But, uh, as I say, modern cosmology has not advanced beyond the creation myths of um, ancient cultures and (laughs) still treats it as a religion, which is most unfortunate because it's wasted a huge amount of money 
and uh, it's prevented us from really understanding ourselves and the universe. Yeah, it's keeping us down. Yeah. Um, by the way, the torsion physics thing, uh, I, I remember the name of the scientist, that's Korsarev. Oh, yes. You should look into him if you're not familiar, because if you if you have it like, you know, you see something uh, that's true they're onto something but they can't figure it out then yes and, and you can fit it into the electric universe theory then uh, then you you should do that because I, I think that uh, stuff like Korsarev and tesla and others who have been researching in the in areas which are threatening to the current status quo i mean one thing is ideas can be threatening right but true but uh, in the old days that was enough to get you smacked down but i think today it's more practical if you if you challenge power money technology military that's when they are intervening so if the electrical universe theory can explain many of these things then i get why it's blacked out are you familiar with another guy who is a contemporary his name is maurice cotterell and he uh, claims that he can explain he says for example that gravity is electromagnetic too he says that he can he has this book future science and he says that he uh, he can explain everything about gravity but mm. from what you're telling me it sounds to me that it's pretty similar to to the stuff he's he's doing now, are you familiar at all with that no um we have people uh who support us uh and the thunderbolts group i should point out is the american center of all of our activity now mm. uh the website thunderbolts.info has hundreds of hours of um Uh, videos and blogs and whatnot which go through all of this information but in particular there are some who uh and one in particular chris reeve who looks into controversy controversies in science and he looks at what other people are saying mm. and their and the reaction to what they're saying as well and uh if if these people had come up with something which impinged on the electric universe i'm sure they would have drawn my attention to it because well but the problem is cotterell is very old and not active mm. anymore he's retired so so he may have gone under the radar but if if your colleague is listening now uh check out uh, maurice cotterell mm. and his book future science yeah i have tried to get him on but uh, he's very old school so i'm not even sure he does this kind of interviews yeah. but I, i'll not give up we'll see But uh, okay, now um, I have a million more questions here, and I see we are <laughs> officially closing up to a break. But let's see what we can do. What about? Yeah. Well, let me first start with this. What about light or photons? Oh, I see. What's that role? <clears throat> well, photons can't exist um, because they are supposed to have zero mass. Particles with zero mass. There is no such thing in the universe as a particle with zero mass, mm. because to be a particle, they would have to have structure. Mm -hmm. and that uh, electrical structure and that would respond to the matter in the rest of the universe and so it would um uh you know it's it's the old problem of trying to transfer energy and inventing a particle to do it and uh also it involves infinities um the idea that you can have a particle of zero mass but yet get it to reach the speed of light which according to einstein's theory requires infinite energy 
um, would require zero mass, but multiplying zero by infinity doesn't give you an, a number because infinity is not a number. You can't no. use it in mathematics. Um, <clears throat> it's like zero, isn't it? Yeah, yes. Well, zero is a useful concept, the, the absence of something. Mm. Um, but the electric universe uh, subscribes to the idea that the light itself to have a waveform must be a disturbance in a medium. You cannot trans, you cannot wave nothing. Mm. So there is a medium, and space is full of it. And uh, back in the 70s, there was a radiation physicist who proposed that uh, uh, the universe is a plenum, if you like, a, an ocean of neutrinos. And he point he went on to present his arguments as to why that was so. And uh, I found that to be a very useful model because it would explain the transfer of electromagnetic radiation through space. And it would also explain what's called gravitational lensing because being normal matter, having vanishingly small mass, it would still respond to large objects with a strong gravitational field and form a kind of extended atmosphere about that object. And that object can be a star like the sun or it can be an entire uh, galaxy. So, yes, lensing occurs, but it is no different to diffraction in the Earth's atmosphere. It, gravity is not responsible for bending light. It is the atmospheric uh, material that it forms around ponderable bodies in the universe. Hmm. Also, uh, it was shown by another physicist from the Natural Philosophy Alliance Dr. Henry Doughty, that the uh, deflection that is measured by radio waves past the sun indicates that the deflection is caused by the plasma near the sun. But I would go further than that and say that at greater distances from the sun, any deflection of light is caused by the more dense atmosphere of neutrinos around that body. Hmm. Neutrinos are essential, actually, in the electric universe theory to explain quasars, hmm. uh, the ejection of these objects from the centers of active galaxies, which was uh, Dr. Halton Arps, the basis of his research, which showed that the universe is not expanding, because he pointed out that uh, redshift is not a measure of, it's not a Doppler effect at all. It's something that occurs in the very matter that's ejected from the active galaxy because initially it appears to have very low mass mm. and that mass increases over time. And the question is, well, how does that happen? Well, it can happen if the proton and the electron in those objects is of a different mass to the proton and the electron in the Earth's environment, in our galaxy. And this turns out to be very simply explained because Halton Arp found that the redshift of these objects is quantized and quantization of radiation is a atomic effect, a particle effect. And of course, that means that uh, a lot of the constants in the physics books are not constants at all. They just refer to things as they are on Earth. And we've made the mistake and we continue to make it and we've done for thousands of years of trying to explain the universe in terms merely of the things that we observe on our little Earth, traveling around our insignificant sun in an insignificant galaxy in a huge universe. Mm. So, so in the electrical universe theory, um, 
although you say it's not infinite, because we see here... No, we can't say. You, we don't know what we mean by infinite anyway. Okay. Um, all we know all we know is that it's of unknown extent and unknown age. Mm. Because we can say nothing about a creation event since we don't understand matter itself. Mm. You, certainly, uh, the idea that the Big Bang occurred from uh, a point source, which is non-physical, and with you know phenomenal energy, which is not defined in modern physics, uh, is just it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Energy in the electric universe is defined as the motion of matter with response to all the matter in the rest of the universe. And since all matter in the universe is an electric charge, it is due to the electric force between all that matter. And the more rapidly your movement moving in respect to the matter in the rest of the universe, the more energy you have. So, but how would you define, uh, we should probably begin with this question, how would you define electricism? Oh, now, the electric universe... Because if that's the cause of everything, uh, we should have to start defining it, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, the electric universe, as I said, we go down one more level uh, than the standard thinking the, with the atomic model. Yeah. So the electron, proton and the neutrino must have orbital structure. But we don't know, we still don't know what is inside that orbital structure. So all we're doing is pushing the mystery Mm. down one more level. Mm. And we have no idea how far down you have to go. But there are clues. Yeah, but hang on, hang on. It's the same if you go up. Because we see that solar systems are whirling around... Uh, a central sun, if you like, yeah. uh, and, and, and so galaxies, and, and then they talk about clusters of galaxies. So I say, you see the same mm, principles mm. in macro as I see in micro. Sure. That's right. We don't know uh, how far it goes in either direction and right. where we sit in, in relation to whatever it is we are mm. in this universe. Mm. Um, but that's okay. I think the important thing is to understand that when you go from one scale to another, when there's a vast difference in those scales, you cannot assume that the electric force is operating or in the dominant form of that force is the same at each different scale. Mm. And this is important because once you get beyond the solar system, you are not looking at a gravitational system, you're looking at an electromagnetic universe. Mm. So you have to apply electromagnetic laws. In fact, I've often said that electrical engineers should be cosmologists, <laughs> yeah. not the ones we've got there at present. And that's true because Hans Alfane was, in effect, a uh, a very good electrical engineer. Mm. And a lot of his ideas came from practical research into uh, you know power transfer over um, you know continental transmission lines and that kind of thing. And he saw the effects that can occur when you do something stupid mm. and they can be quite catastrophic and uh, dramatic uh, which but, but, but then there's the, the, just a half step from electronics to music then you should elevate musicians too oh yes <laughs> because they're, they're working In fact, uh, and, we, and from we, musicians to uh, there's a half step to ancient mystics <laughs> <laughs> the, the, this is the thing about the electric universe no one is uh, unwelcome 
to make a contribution. In fact, right, uh, right. we do welcome artists. We've had poets, we've had uh, painters, we've had uh, musicians, all inspired by what we're doing simply because it shows the connectedness of all things, which is something... Yeah, but I'm thinking especially musicians. Well, also artists because they work with color, but I'm thinking yes. the system of harmonics Yes. Yes. It's so relevant here. It's just that they are just working with the audible scale. Exactly. In fact, harmonics are basic to life. Um, yeah. I, I totally agree. Uh, in fact, I yeah. wanna I wanna throw something at you uh, <laughs> because me I'm my geeky stuff has to do with ancient Greek philosophers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, they there is this conundrum, and I'm going to present you a case, and then I want your take on it. So there is uh, this classical problem of waves versus particles uh, yes. we have in modern science, right? But mm-hmm. uh, I think the ancients solved that because they talked about ether, ether obviously meaning divine fire, mm. and they believed that ether consisted of consisted of infinite particles which were kept in uninterrupted vibration, and these particles mm-hmm. they called eons, and they not only filled matter but they also filled space and time. Mm. However, they distinguished between the form the particles assumed in material substances and the way they manifested themselves in the apparent void that separates them. So Mm. um, you can say the eons filling the space, they vibrate without propagating Mm-hmm. Uh, without uh, transmitting and they follow a wave motion wh- whereas those who form matter are subjected to constant movement and extreme velocity and are also subject to a scattering motion so although they, dis- although they distinguish between the wave and propagation movements of the subatomic particles they knew that the wave responds to the manifestation of eons outside matter and the other mm. to the way they manifest themselves in material bodies. And I think that's a beautiful uh, solving of the wave versus particle problem that they're still bickering about to date. <laughs> so uh, what's your take on uh, what I just said? Well, I think uh, at an intuitive level, and I must say the electric universe has relied very strongly on intuition Mm. an intuitive uh, view of what's right and what's wrong Um, and also not rejecting material that is um, uh, appears on the surface to be out of hand or doesn't conform with what's believed at present Um, all of these things have contributed to the electric universe model which has now uh, encompassed biology living systems as well as um, you know planetary systems and stellar systems Uh, and throughout it all it involves the resonant behavior of matter over distances in other words you begin to understand that consciousness itself is not contained within uh, the brain it's um, Mm. It's, we're more like a receiver and sender because. So you subscribe to Sheldrake's take about uh, what is his talk about a field? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Mm. And he, he's he's what I would call a great scientist because he devises simple experiments to test these ideas, and uh, so far he's had great success. Sure. And, and yet his book, when it first came out in the 1970s, uh, was. Um, subjected to a uh, comment by the editor, Maddox, 
of Nature magazine saying it was fit to burn. <laughs> That's always an honorary mark in my book. I think as soon as somebody <laughs> says that, then yeah. uh, you want you to know go, they're onto it. You go and read it, yeah, because um, yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, some years ago, I used to write letters to the Canberra Times, our local. When I say local patriots, we're the national capital, so it, mm. it has more responsibility than the usual local paper. Mm-hmm. The science editor um, dubbed me the boundary writer of science, and <laughs> I thought <laughs> that was very nice. appropriate because yeah. I'm always looking for where there's a great cloud of dust being raised by the herd, <laughs> right, and right. having a look and, and seeing what it is that's agitating them, and usually. That's where you find uh, answers that you were looking for. Uh, that is the only way to get out of Plato's cave, isn't it? <laughs> yes. yes. But, but I didn't quite grasp. What's your take on the wave versus the particle controversy? Well, um, <laughs> the wave versus particle uh, theory, uh, the wave or particle, depending on what experiment you're doing and what you prefer to uh, use as the concept behind it, uh, is shows that the light itself is not understood. Mm. It's as simple as that. Uh, when Einstein removed the ether, he was trying to reconcile Maxwell's laws with uh, mechanics. And in doing so, uh, he knew that there had to be an ether, but for some reason, he seemed to... Uh, his special relativity theory did away with it. Yeah, tragically. <laughs> And it's, yeah, he never explained how he could do that. Mm. Uh, as soon as he did that, he lost all means of um, explaining it. And uh, so it's been a case of a mere matter of arbitrary choice, whether you talk about photons or a wave. The electric universe uh, points out that uh, neutrinos, being normal matter, can be polarized by uh, an electric force. Um, so if you have moving charges, they exert a changing electric force on nearby particles, which will force the distortion of those particles, even if they're neutral. And a neutrino is electrically neutral, but obviously it must be composed of positive and negative subparticles. Okay, so if you have an alternating electric field in an antenna, uh, the neutrinos nearby will have to rotate their dipole uh, in concert with the uh, frequency of the signal that's um, being radiated by that, that antenna. Now, that happens to the nearby neutrinos, and as they rotate, they then affect the neutrinos that are more distant and so on. So it's the rotation of the electric dipoles of neutrinos which carries the wave information. Mm-hmm. It is a transverse uh, activity, yeah, uh, and that means that the uh, rotational inertia of the neutrinos will determine the speed of light and also their density, how many you've got between you and the receiver uh, at any given point will determine the speed. Now, of course, this is what we observe. Uh, light slows down in water and air uh, over what we measure in a vacuum, and we realize now then that a vacuum is full of neutrinos. You cannot keep them out. They'll pass through the walls of your container. Yeah, space is not empty. Exactly. And this is the failure of the uh, gravitational wave detector. There you've got the biggest vacuum chamber on Earth with the most perfect vacuum they can get. It's full of neutrinos. So if you have a disturbance in the ether passing the Earth at the speed of light, 
That's all you'll detect is a disturbance in the ether. It says nothing about gravity, which is a longitudinal force, mm. not a transverse force. So what they're, if they're detecting anything, it's a, a disturbance in the ether. I love it. You recognize ether. That's so great. But yeah. uh, so transverse, sure. What about the idea that particles can breed or transmit, that they actually move, not just a transverse movement, but an actual spreading movement? Um, I'm not quite sure what you mean there, but. Um, well, well, you have the in in a way, right? You have the idea that yeah. uh, the particles are not actually moving, but that they are pushing. Oh, I see. Yeah, so I guess that's what you call transverse, right? And then you have the idea that no, no, it's the particles that's actually moving all the way from A to B. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah, I think they call it the scalar. Uh, I use layman's terms. I'm not a scientist, so yeah. 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 This is the problem. Modern physics is full of misleading language. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, yeah. and this is what I find with those people, like the ones you mentioned, I read their material and as soon as they start using words that are undefined or have no meaning, physical meaning, I realize that um, you know, they've unfortunately wasted their time. Right. Uh, although their fundamental thinking may be along the right, the right track, they've lost any physical meaning to what they're talking about. And this happens almost and, and, and that's the schools are to blame because they impose upon them more and more yes. esoteric language that removes it from practical terms and layman understanding that's right i think it, w- it would be much more if it was more available and more um, kept in, in touch with the culture then we would have much more brain power coming into these fields <laughs> not just these nerds that suffer through all this yeah, meaningless right. education right Unfortunately, we're taught so-called facts, which aren't facts. What is needed to educate a student and make them fit to be a scientist is to present them always with alternatives so that they have to go away and think about who has argued the best case and then make a decision. In other words, they're forced to think about alternatives. This is why now when uh, scientists are faced with a conundrum, they don't have an alternative. They say it's back to the drawing board. But what do they do? They leave what they had there before on the board and just scribble around the outside. What they've got to do is wipe that board clean and start again. I totally agree. You know, let's get more into this in in the second part and we'll take a break now. But just uh, you were uh, addressing the particle uh, spreading and breeding thing, the transmission of particles. Uh, Yes, yes, yes. Okay, there's two different activities of the neutrinos between one object and another. The one we spoke about was electromagnetic radiation, which is a transverse uh, effect caused by the rotation of an electric dipole Mm. between you and the uh, receiver, Mm. the transmitter and the receiver. Um, The gravitational force is longitudinal, and it's just like a stretched wire between the two objects, and it's just a daisy chain effect where there is a tiny dipole, electric dipole, transferred from one uh, neutrino to the next, directly facing towards the receiving object. And because the neutrinos are not having to rotate there, because the motion of the object at some distance is in, <laughs> it's almost unmeasurably small, mm. then uh, any motion, acceleration or whatever between the two, any force between them is transferred Instantly, there is no speed of light delay because you're not talking about the rotation of the um, 
transferring particles, the neutrinos. It's like they're all lined up just like a, a taut rope, taut um, object. Yeah, like like billiard balls. Yeah, it's the difference. You know, wave and gravity, uh, the difference is like that of um, stretching a rope uh, between two people and one end waves it up and down and the wave travels slowly down until it gets to the other end. That's your light. Mm. The, but if one tugs on the rope, you feel it much faster. Yeah. You know, the speed of sound through the whatever it is between. So, so both phenomenons are a part of. Uh... Yes. And neutrinos must be uh, deformable in three dimensions, which means they must have a symmetrical, spherical orbital system, just like an atom. Then it sounds like the electrical universe theory is fully in harmony with the ancient Greek take on this. Yes, I think intuitively we've always had this notion mm. that there's more, uh, there is a soul, for instance, there's something beyond the body which is related to you, part of you, but it's not visible and it's not detectable by modern techniques. Um, and we know that the body itself is electrically driven because you get electric signals from the brain, from the nerves, from the yeah. muscles and so on. The whole thing is electrical. Mm. The beauty of biology is that uh, there is this other signaling system which uh, scientists are unaware of, and that is this direct uh, transfer of resonant signals between all molecules of the same structure within the body so that your body operates in real time, not with uh, nerve delay times and uh, speed of light transferred uh, delays, all of these things would mean that we wouldn't be able to operate uh, the way we do. Uh, we wouldn't be able to synchronize all the bodily functions, all of the chemical, millions of chemical reactions that are taking place every microsecond uh, without this instantaneous connection throughout the body, and not only that, but beyond the body. Hmm. Hmm. This opens doors to so many interesting... Uh, damn, I wish... Uh, you know, oh, we have to take a break now. Um, I, I think I need to invite you back to uh, for a second discussion because I want in part two to discuss, like I said, the failure of academia. But yes. uh, I realized the electrical universe is opening so <laughs> many doors. You, you, one of them you open is the notion of consciousness yes. and soul. That's very well, interesting. This is, the, this is the thing I say to people, that uh, a real cosmology can have no exceptions, and it must address a question from exactly. any discipline. Everything. Because uh, it, it cannot exclude data observations from any no. source. No. Yeah, in fact, the, uh, the structure of the Earth and stars and that is uh, quite different to what people think. Right. You know, this whole idea of uh, hot centers and, you know, radiation coming from within and all that kind of thing is because they don't understand how these objects are formed in the first place because gravitational theory doesn't explain it. <clears throat> it's just a story. And uh, also, if you don't understand gravity, you can't apply Newton's law inside a planet or a star. Mm. Because the center of mass is an imaginary point. This would be relevant to the catastrophism subject, right? Oh, yes, yes. 
Yeah, because another thing that I associate with electrical universe is uh, catastrophism. It's an interesting approach to catastrophism. Oh, that that is so important for us to understand. Yes, but I think that's a, an entire show in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Would you come back and we'll we'll do the, uh, a session on that? Sure. Okay, then then you you can account for that uh, when we do a follow up with you. Yeah, I think that's probably. Velikovsky himself, that was the most important understanding for humanity was to understand ourselves. Otherwise, we're in danger of destroying ourselves in a repeat of yeah. a past trauma. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so today we have uh, scratched a little of uh, understanding about uh, the theory itself. Now in part two, we're going to take on how it is met in the world. And then when you come back, we'll take on this um, implications of it, uh, the serious implications like catastrophism. But mm. let's take uh, a short break, a couple of minutes and continue this feast when we get back. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks. 